Welcome to the intersection of faith and the culture. It's Wall Builders, and we're taking on the hot topics of the day from a biblical, historical, and constitutional perspective. I'm Rick Green, America's Constitution coach and a former legislator with the privilege of serving here with David and Tim Barton. Tim's a national speaker and pastor and president of Wall Builders. David Barton's our founder, and he's also America's premier historian. And all three of us, thank you for watching. Hope you check out our website today at wallbuilders.com. You know, I said thank you for watching. You're not watching. You're listening. You might be watching, but you're really only here. Anyway, bottom line is, thanks for listening. Go to patriotacademy.com if you want to learn more about the coffee I was talking about yesterday and some of the Constitution classes. Go to wallbuilders.com if you want to get some of those materials right now today and be teaching your family. You can share all kinds of links. Get your pastor to go to one of our pastor's briefings throughout the year. Uh, All kinds of great stuff there. So check it out, wallbuilders.com. And then PatriotAcademy.com. And just for fun, I'm going to give you a third website uh, because, you know, I was I was talking about that coffee yesterday. It's so funny to me that everybody was wondering what I had in the mug. What was I clanking mugs with in the tavern uh, with uh, with Mark Meckler on Monday? And then yesterday we shared the interview with Eric Metaxas. So I'm sure we'll get more questions about it. Uh, but I had a little bit of fun in these uh, in these tavern episodes because I'm drinking coffee. I'm drinking coffee in my mug, regardless of what the other person is drinking. I think pretty much we've had either Topo Chico or water or, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, I had some fun, you know, creating this coffee. Patriot Academy has our own coffee now. It's called Patriot Brew. We're helping to create that parallel economy where you don't spend any money with woke coffee companies. You don't spend any money with these people out there that are undermining our nation. And so I had a lot of fun creating the bags, creating the the content on the back of the bags because I like combining the Constitution with coffee. So I'm going to read one to you real quick so you know what's happening in the tavern when I'm drinking that mug. Here's my Liberty Light Roast. I love drinking this one. Here's what it says on the back. We hold these truths to be self-evident that not all coffees are created equal, but that all Americans are endowed by their creator with the inalienable right to embrace the dawn of a new day with our Liberty Light Roast a vibrant blend that captures the essence of freedom and new beginnings. Infused with the spirit of optimism, this delightful coffee blend is a testament to the boundless opportunities that lie ahead for our nation. This blend is perfect for those who prefer a lighter, more uplifting coffee experience as they declare the causes that impel them to the separation from all woke coffee brands. Let the invigorating taste of Liberty Light Roast energize your morning routine, setting the tone for a day filled with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Come on, I bet you laughed. I bet you had a good time just hearing that. Get you some Patriot Brew over at patriotbrew.com. It tastes and smells as good as that sounded right there. That was some good stuff right there, mixing the declaration with coffee. All right, David and Tim, we're jumping into those questions. First one up is Ellis. Oh, this is so good. Dear Rick, David, and Tim, this is Ellis from Pennsylvania. I am now six years old. Six, guys, not 16, not 60. I am now six years old. I am learning the names of the 50 states. Why are some of them new? Like New York, New Hampshire, New Mexico, and New Jersey. How long can the states be new? I love this. And will they ever become old? Your response would be very much appreciated. Thank you, Ellis in Pennsylvania. Ellis, you're amazing. I just love the fact that we've got a six-year-old listener and a six-year-old that put this question together for us, and I have no idea what the answer is, Ellis, so I'm going to join with you and ask David and Tim, how long can a state be new, and does it ever become old? Hey, first off, massive alert. We have a thinker in the crowd. This this is really good. A six-year-old. How many adults have thought about the word new as associated with states? 
I mean, that's that's great. And parents are doing a great job. So, Ellis, you got some great parents there. But thank you for thinking. Keep thinking about thinking and keep asking questions. That's good stuff. Amen. So, Ellis, probably the uh, an easy way to kind of explain it, it's really kind of comparative. It's like the Bible talks about the new heavens and the new earth as opposed to the old heavens and the old earth. Or you have the explorers had the new world and the old world. One is just newer than the other. It's not how long they've been around. It's, it's that this is the way it used to be, but now we've got a new one of those. So let me take your, your questions on states and kind of track you back on some. But So if you take a state like New Hampshire, why would it be new? Because Hampshire is the key word there. What happened was the area that we call New Hampshire used to be part of a Dutch colony. And when the Dutch had it, they called it New Amsterdam. Now, why would they do that? Because Amsterdam was the capital of the Netherlands. And so when all those Dutch people came over here to America, they they loved their country and they loved where they were and they kind of brought their patriotism with them so that it became the new New Amsterdam. Well, when the British took over that, that colony and the British did take over that colony, when they took over the colony, uh, John Mason, who was the guy who helped do that, he was from Hampshire, England. And so he said, this is New Hampshire because it's like I'm in the new country and I'm taking my, my name and my town with me. I have this this loyalty to it. And so, and back, by the way, back in England, um, that word uh, that Hampshire actually was just an old English word for village town. So he was from a village town. And when he got to America, it was a new village town. So he loved his town of Hampshire. And when he got here, he just named it New Hampshire. Uh, it's pretty much the same way with New York. Um, new York was, they had been, they had another name. And then when it was taken by the British, uh, the Duke of York took it and he he put the name there so new york honoring the duke of york who took that that area um you have the same thing with new jersey um the the guy that new jersey the the guy placed over new jersey was the guy who had been the governor of the island of jersey and the english channels so because he was governor there and then comes to the new world he's governor here this is new jersey so he's a governor in two places so this is kind of what they did. They just brought that with them. And, and with New Mexico, you had a bunch of Spanish settlers who had been in Mexico. They got on the, to the New Mexico area and said, this looks like Mexico. So they called it New Mexico. It was a new place they had not been, but it looked like Mexico that they were used to. So that's where a lot of those those names came from was it was just new. And, and by the way, I'll just point out a whole lot of towns in America uh, are named by settlers who came here from other countries. We have towns in America that are named for cities in Afghanistan and Belgium and Argentina and Australia, Germany, France and Italy and Israel, and you just name it. There are dozens and dozens of countries where people who came here brought their, the memory of that town with them, and they, they carried that town over here. So whether you take something like Andover, which is a British town, or Birmingham, Alabama, British town, or Boston, which is a British town, or Bethlehem, which is an Israeli town, and on and on it goes – uh, Plymouth is a is a British town. Those are all American names, and they're named after old world places where settlers left from those old world places to come to America and brought those memories with them. So great question, Ellis, and that's where a, a lot of this comes from is newer people coming from older areas and bringing those ways with them and trying to, to have, if you will, a, a memory or a tie to the past, something they loved, and that's why they changed the names. I was I was trying really hard Tim to think of a good joke for you know new and old and um, careful I, 
Care, uh, yeah, careful, that's bro. what I was afraid I, of. I was like, I, uh, I, was, I was thinking, you I know, I'm going to get, I'm going to get hate mail for not honoring um, our elders. <laughs> that's what's going <laughs> to. I love it. I love it. Ellis, bless you, bless you, young man. Keep the keep the questions coming. Send us another one soon, okay? Vicky's got the next one though. Uh, this one says, "I am confused by the phrase we have the power of the purse." It is said as though the House can force the Senate to work with them, yet the Senate does not do the work and only belittles the work of the House. The power of the purse doesn't seem to actually or practically mean anything, yet the House uses the phrase often as if to say, if they don't agree to work this out, at least we have the power of the purse. Doesn't mean anything. According to the way our founding fathers set things up for this country to to succeed, how is this supposed to work when the nefarious bullies dig their feet in? What actual power does the current House have? to move for the common sense of the country. Well, thanks for being a listener, Vicki. Uh, fantastic question. And uh, David and Tim, does it actually mean anything anymore? It should, because the Constitution makes it really clear that all spending measures have to originate in the House, not the Senate, not the President. So the Senate can't start a spending bill. The President can't start a spending bill. Only the House can. Now, the question is, does the House hold on to those responsibilities And the answer generally is no. The power of the purse still means something. It's just not used. And it's really hard to hold on to that when you only have a one-vote majority. And some of those folks you have are are fairly liberal, and they support liberal programs, et cetera. So what happens is the the Senate has learned how to hold the House hostage. They will come up with a bill and say, well, we're not going to let you fund the military unless you fund all of our social programs. And conservatives and Republicans don't want to see the military shut down, and they don't want to see money taken away from the military. So they say, okay. If you'll let the military stuff go through, we'll let you have X, Y, Z. So at some point in time, if this is ever going to get back under control, it's because the House is going to have to set its foot down and say, no, we are the ones with the power of the purse. And by the way, this is a huge thing. Trump's a big thing in the election coming up, no question about it. But so is the House. The House is more likely to change to Democrat than the presidency is to remain Democrat, if that makes sense. So really, the House is more in jeopardy than the presidency is right now several months out. But that's something to remember. If you if you don't like the way that the House is not using the power of the purse, then give them more people who understand that. But that's the way the Constitution has done it. So you still have to defend that, stay with that. It's a really good plan. Well, Dad, too, I think it's worth identifying that even though there's only a one-vote majority now in the House, that this has been something that people that have been paying attention, you would have heard this a decade ago, two decades ago, right? We're going to use the power of the purse and so often what happens, it's like the parent that threatens to discipline their child over and over and over and never does anything, right? The parent's like, I'm going yep. to give you to the count of three. One, two, two and a half, <laughs> two and three quarters. Rob, I'm going to start over, but this time I mean it. One, <laughs> two. Like, this is the reality so often yeah. is the house continues to threaten to do something but because they don't follow through, that's what allows the Senate to say, no, we're not going to play your game. In fact, you're going to play our game or we're not going to give you anything. You can't get the deals done you want to get done. And this is not a brand new thing. This is something that's been going on, I mean, pretty much for as long as any of us have paid attention in politics. We have seen this happen. And Dad, to your point, the Constitution clearly identifies that the House is the one that the spending originates in the house the house can choose to cut the funding of projects the house can choose to to not fund things beyond a certain year and one of the reasons that this is not always effective is sometimes they look at cutting funding for something 
when funding has already been giving certain given certain projects for the next six or eight years. So if you're going to cut funding, the funding that you're cutting is not going to have any impact on that agency, any impact on that specific thing for the next several years. So there are several factors to it that make it more complicated than just turning off the water faucet and therefore all water stops. That's not quite how it would work, although maybe it should, but certainly the house does have the power. They usually just don't have the backbone to follow through and therefore they're making idle threats, which at this point is not really scaring anybody. I love that analogy. That that feels exactly what it it seems to be as happening. It's literally just idle threats, idle threats, and then you don't ever follow through. There's no fear of repercussion whatsoever. Uh, okay, so let's see. Next question comes from Tony, and Tony says, uh, to the rope of three strands. Hope that is not offensive, as it is meant to be a compliment with biblical reference. I love and appreciate the show and myriad of instruction. Recent talk about the national border or the lack of it, thanks to some government officials, has brought to mind thoughts about militias and Minutemen. If you do not want to address this on air, I understand and know that you do not promote violence, neither do I. But are militia paramilitary groups that are not state-sanctioned unconstitutional or felonious? While looking into this, I came across an article stating the Constitution does not prevent the prohibition of private paramilitary organizations, and he cites the Heller case uh, that had to do with um, being able to have a handgun in your home, actually, in that case in, in D.C., I believe. Uh, at face value, it would seem this thought would apply to private security firms. Any thoughts uh, from Tony? So first of all, Tony, thank you for the compliment, actually. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm honored to, uh, to be one of three strands with these two guys, for sure, anytime I get the chance to do that. In fact, I remember, David, your, uh, your message at your daughter Damaris's wedding was about the three strands and the power of that. So uh, pretty cool. Pretty cool. But uh, great question, and I, I bet we could probably spend the rest of our program today talking about this, the constitutionality of it, and then just the, the, the practical aspect of what it means to come together with your neighbors and, and be prepared to defend your city. Uh, so, guys, I'll toss it to you in just a second. Let's take a quick break, and, and then David and Tim will comment on this and, and sort of the practical aspects of this, as well as the history of militias and uh, defending communities. Stay with us, folks. You're listening to The Wall Builder Show. Hi friends, this is Tim Barton of Wall Builders. This is a time when most Americans don't know much about American history or even Hebrews of the faith. And I know oftentimes for parents, we're trying to find good content for our kids to read. And if you remember back to the Bible, to the book of Hebrews, it has the Faith Hall of Fame where they outline the leaders of faith that had gone before them. Well, this is something that as Americans, we really want to go back and outline some of these heroes, not just of American history, but heroes of Christianity and our faith as well. I want to let you know about some biographical sketches we have available on our website. One is called the Courageous Leaders Collection. In this collection, it includes people like Abigail Adams, Abraham Lincoln, Francis Scott Key, George Washington Carver, Susanna Wesley, even the Wright brothers. And there's a second collection called Heroes of History. In this collection, you'll read about people like Benjamin Franklin or Christopher Columbus, Daniel Boone, George Washington, Harriet Tubman. Friends, the list goes on and on. This is a great collection for your young person to have and read, and it's a providential view of American and Christian history. This is available at wallbuilders.com. That's www.wallbuilders.com. Welcome back to Wall Builders. Thanks for staying with us. A question from Tony today about uh, militias and the constitutionality of that and whether or not that can be uh, ruled as unconstitutional. I guess it depends, guys, on, on exactly what he means by a militia. I think what we mean by a militia is, you know, the community coming together to de defend their community. 
Yeah, and there's a lot of definitions for sure, and he recognized that, and you just did, Rick. And one of the things I think folks need to understand about the Second Amendment is it actually protects two rights in there. It protects the right of the individual to defend themselves, and it protects the right of the community to defend themselves. So you have an individual and a corporate aspect of the Second Amendment. Uh, There's a collective body that can come together, or there's an individual that can defend themselves. So within that framework, I think the, the basic guideline is you have a right to organize a militia, a community state, a city, a HOA, whatever it is, as long as you're not interfering with existing state laws and existing uh, police activities. If you're going out there to, to do police activities and you don't think the police are punishing Black Lives Matter riots, so I'm going to go punish those rioters. No, you can't, you can't do that kind of stuff. You can defend your areas. You can defend the things that come against your areas. You can defend your communities if they come under attack and no one else is there to, to defend them. You can do you can step in where that there's not a militia or a military or state or national guard to step in and do that. If rioters went crazy, yeah, you can organize people to, to step in and defend your businesses, to step in and defend your, your streets and your houses, etc. So I don't think the founding fathers were we're thinking, oh, it has to be the government organized that that does this, or you have to follow the government regulations on what it means to train and be a militia member. No, you have a corporate collective right to self-defense. And if you're attacked and come under attack, you can get people to join with you and do whatever it takes to defend that area. But it's not supposed to be an offensive force. It's a defensive force. You're defending yourself. You're not going to attack those on the other side of, I don't know, the border or you know, if you're in Texas, we're not crossing the Red River to invade Oklahoma or anything else. That's going to be a real problem. But you do have the right for corporate self-defense of the inalienable rights that God gave you, which includes your property, your life, your family, all those things that he gave you. You can organize people to defend that for sure. Yeah, and I think I think people uh, often think of, you know, uh, if, if a riot comes to my town or whatever it might be, you know, being able to come together with with fellow citizens, protect, a, a like you said, a piece of property or the safety or just even to stop a a bunch of chaos that's going on, but then also, you know, potentially as the founding fathers sought the ability to uh, to stand up to uh, the government if it's out of control. So great question, and uh, I like that uh, that rope of three strands. Guys, I think, too, one of the things that, that people have seen is raised questions about is we, we've seen that there are people of Congress that are suggesting that they're drafting legislation suggesting that people should not be able to train personally, individually, collectively anymore, because it could be a threat to the government or right, whatever their consideration might be. But that would include things. This is significant, right? I mean, Rick, that would include things like what you're doing with constitutional defense down in Frederick, right? Right. Where you have a group of people coming together and, and they're not coming together to learn to take on the federal government. Although, you know, in the evening classes, we talk about upholding the constitution, which those in the federal government that do not believe in the Constitution might view that as them being challenged, but right. that's not what the Second Amendment training is about. It's it's literally about learning self-defense. It, it's, yeah. That is the entire goal of that handgun defensive course is to help the moms, the dads, the, the single kids, right? Whether college, whatever it is, the, 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 all of the, the ladies, the grandmas, the moms, the girls in college, like everybody needs to know how to work a firearm. I mean, we want everybody to own firearms, but you need to know how they function. You need to know how to use it. You need to know how you load a mag, how you chamber around, how you go through malfunctions. If, if the gun 
it clicks or misfires or something happens, what do you do? We want people to have the proper training to be adequately prepared to defend themselves. And this is not about taking on the federal government, but the concern we are seeing from many people is that if the federal government's able to come and tell private individuals that they cannot train by themselves or in groups, they would only be doing that as a precursor to then saying, in fact, you don't even need guns anymore. And this is the process of disarming the people or making the people uh, incapable of, of properly defending themselves from tyranny and from oppression, from terrorist groups, whether that be right enemies, foreign or domestic. And so I, I, I do, and that might have been part of the question. I do know there's been concern about that, but certainly this is something that just like in Hawaii, where in Hawaii they're saying, hey, people don't have the right to firearms anymore. But that's not going to stand when it's challenged in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, which is one of many reasons that we are thankful that got a Donald Trump in place at the time he did to get Supreme Court justices there, who although we have issues with several of them that identify as conservative or that at least would be considered in the conservative side of the Supreme Court, we have issues with several of them, but there's enough of them that seem to uphold a constitutional perspective that they're going to dismiss this Hawaiian argument where even the Hawaiian Supreme Court said, it's time for us to move on past the Constitution and past the founding fathers and do something new. Well, that's, that's not how this works. If we want to move on and change, do something new, you do a constitutional amendment. That's how the process works, not arbitrarily, independently from judges over in Hawaii or from individual congressmen in D.C. So there certainly is a lot going on, but I have a lot of confidence right now in a lot of these uh, appellate courts, appellate judges in the Supreme Court, not in every respect. Again, we have problems with several justices on decisions they've made, but when it comes to the Second Amendment, I am very confident that the Supreme Court is going to uphold the correct constitutional perspective and interpretation and recognize that individual citizens have the right to possess firearms, to train, and to learn how to defend themselves, their family, and their communities. And I'm going to jump in on that training point for just a minute because, Rick, as you have the, the classes you do at Fredericksburg, the Constitution does say a well-regulated militia. A well-regulated militia is a trained militia. It's yeah. not one that picks up a gun for the first time and goes, which end do I point at them? <laughs> it's one that's already been trained. And we go back and, and often talk about John Quincy Adams when he was eight years old. His father had him out doing the musket drills with the Massachusetts militia that was there in the, their community. And so he knew all the commands and he, he performed all the commands on the order of the commander. And so that's a well-regulated militia, but that, that starts with being a well-regulated citizen who knows the proper use of firearms. So commercial, Rick, for, for what you've got going, I mean, people need that. And that is the constitutional approach toward having good, good defense is good training. Yeah, and I think everybody, you know, honestly should be for that, right? That you want the people that are carrying to be well trained and to, uh, to you know, know what they're doing, like you're saying. And and um, so, yeah, we definitely invite everybody to check that out. PatriotAcademy.com if you want to come train with us down in Fredericksburg. Time for one more question, and it's from Johnny. He said, uh, let's see, with President, I use that term lightly, Biden, approved another, approving another $5 billion in debt cancellation of student loans, can he just wave a pen and make us taxpayers front this cancellation of student loans. Yeah, I mean, Johnny's basically asking, guys, can he just, you know, the old Obama thing, I've got a phone and a pen. With the stroke of a pen, can he just literally shift the payment of those uh, student loans 
from the students that took them out to other taxpayers in the country. Well, I think as long as it's election season, he's going to pretend like he can. Uh, as long as he needs to sway the public, as long as his polling is this low, he's going to keep on doing things like that. And I think it's also possible that uh, he will he will do some of this in places where he knows it'll get challenged. But if if and when it gets overturned by a judge striking it down, he'll say, see, those pesky Republicans, they don't want you to have all of your bills paid for. They're against you. I'm for you. Vote for me. And and there, there are several factors, I think, that led to Biden being elected. Not all of them ethical, uh, being mail-in ballots being one of those. But certainly when you look at some of the demographic of who Biden had support him, Biden did have a significant majority of the rising generation. Hey, Tim, let me interrupt. Just in case anybody thinks we're being conspiratorial by saying mail-in ballots, I will point out in the last couple of weeks, I've come out several independent studies indicating that mail-in ballots were a huge problem in several states, uh, resulting in tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of bad ballots. So we're not living four years ago. We're talking something just in the last few weeks that's confirmed what happened four years ago. So don't think we're being conspiratorial. That's that's not it. Tim, back to you. Well, and so with that being said, right, when when you look at it again, I mean, you can question, right? Should Trump have been president? Should he should be in the clear winner? I mean, you know, th- this is not the program that we're visiting that right now, although that, you know, it's something that's probably a valid conversation to have. However, big picture, Biden did seem to win the majority support from young and rising voters. And right now, none of them are happy, can be happy with the economy, with the, with the issues they're dealing with, having a hard time navigating, finding the jobs or getting a job and the money they make. Because even if they find a job or a good job, a home ownership is not even a possibility for them right now with the way mortgage rates are and home prices right now. And even the apartment prices, they're out of control. This is something that the rising generation is not, cannot be happy with him. And therefore, he is trying to do something strategically, I think, to appease them to try to win more to his side. I don't think it will stand. I don't think it can stand. I, I think certainly... Uh, a judge will strike this down as he tries to do it, but it will not stop him from doing it. And then if it doesn't work, he certainly will pull out the victim card and he'll try to blame Republicans. And, you know, maybe this is the reason we need to expand the Supreme Court again, right? Whatever the argument's going to be, but it definitely will be a, a shift in a blame game. And I think that's part of his strategy, but I do not think it will stand or last. That's it, folks. Out of time for today. Be sure and send your questions in to radio at wallbuilders.com. You have been listening to The Wall Builder Show. Show.